Psalm 33, 6-9. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the depths in their in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the word stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Mark 4, 35 through 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, that he took him in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey to him? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. One of the things that uh, you'll, you'll hopefully be able to see every now and then is our covenant children reading scripture for us uh, as an intergenerational church. Uh, we believe that children are more than just sort of an accessory to our church. They're a vital part of our community. And so we thank you, Hannah, for, for taking the time to read that for us this morning. Well, we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we are looking at the miracles of Jesus and seeing much more than just the miracles, but how the identity of Jesus gives us grace for the very ordinary moments in our lives. And, and hopefully you've seen now how the identity of Jesus causes us to reflect our identity based upon who he is. If Jesus is the Son of God in chapter 1, then he must be the authority of our lives above all other authorities. If Jesus is compassion personified in healing the paralytic, then it leads us to run to him and experience his grace. And if Jesus, as we talked about last week, is the Lord of the Sabbath, then all the rules of religion that we have created for ourselves can never make us see Jesus correctly unless we rest fully in him. And so now we turn this week to uh, Jesus in this very famous passage of him calming the storms and the wind and the rain. And here we're, we're going to take a deeper dive because uh, a lot of times we can gloss over passages like this as just simply, oh, this is, you know, Jesus doing Jesus things. This is just Jesus being Jesus. But we, without really examining the nature of what is happening with the characters and the scenery in this text. And so we are going to examine this text under the category of fear. Now, uh, fear is a very dangerous word, especially in the church, because, uh, you know, 
fear was often a way or a method that was used, perhaps if you grew up in a more rigid environment uh, in the church, to, to get you to do things under the idea that, that God was just very angry with you all the time. Under this definition, when we talk about the fear of God, it doesn't seem like a desirable thing for us, uh, nor even something that later on in life we kind of realize, what, what would a loving God make us want to fear him. I I don't want to worship a God that makes me afraid of him all the time. It's perhaps the cry of of one that you grew up as as understanding the fear of the Lord as being capricious or scary or mean-spirited or fear of the Lord as even being manipulative. But we have to remember that, that fear is something that we experience in every single moment of every single day whether or not you believe in a God or not. Why do you stop at red lights, right? Often it's, it's what you fear that drives many of your decisions, your expectations, your interactions with people all around you. Uh, the philosopher uh, James K.A. Smith often talks about the idea that you are what your desires are, and often those desires are rooted in what you fear. What will people think? How could this harm me? Am I doing the right thing? These are questions that are based in the form of fear of everyday life. You, you, you make a lot of your decisions based upon those questions. So today I want to examine in this text, this, these six verses, four different kinds of fear and do a deep dive of what this means, not just for our lives, but for our understanding of Jesus and getting to see the fear of the Lord as the best thing, rightfully defined, all right? And so uh, if this sounds scary to you, don't worry about it. All right, don't worry about it. I promise you, it's going to be a joyful time as we kind of get through this. But there are four fears that I want us to examine in this text. One, uh, the fear of the world. Two, the fears of the flesh. Three, the fear of the devil. And four, the fear of the Lord. So let's start with the fear of the world. Uh, So Jesus and his disciples at this point in Mark have just finished up ministry teaching about the kingdom of God in parables and how the kingdom of God is going to spread like seeds planted in various different soils. And he's heading to an area called Gerenesenes to start a new chapter of his ministry preaching the word. But in order to get there, you have to cross the Sea of Galilee. And we can show a picture of the Sea of Galilee on the screen for you. If you you know your geography, the Sea of Galilee is kind of like a basin. It's surrounded by mountain ranges on either side of it, creating environments that are ripe for unstable weather activity when crossing. Now, if things are calm in the Sea of Galilee, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. But if things aren't, things can get rough extremely quickly. Squalls could make the Sea of Galilee incredibly difficult and dangerous, and you can get in trouble very, very quickly. On top of that, you have the nature of the boat that you would use to cross the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' age, 33 AD. Let's take a look at that boat. Uh, It would have to be something akin to a fishing boat. They actually excavated the hull of the boat. So this is entirely the full boat, but it kind of gives you a picture of what you'd be residing in. It's roughly 27 feet long, 8 feet wide, and 5 feet high. And at max capacity, one of these boats could fit about 15 people total. So this is an excavation done in 1986, and as you can see, you will notice strikingly what is not here on this boat. There are no propellers, no gas engines, 
There are no flotation devices that are going to keep you afloat in case of an emergency, right? There's no Coast Guard in case you topple over. There's no weather reports that's going to tell you whether or not everything is going to get dangerous. So in other words, to be a fisherman in Jesus' age meant that you had an appropriate amount of fear of the world every time you stepped out onto this piece of wood and went out into the sea. You were risking everything. No matter what your training was, no matter how good of a fisherman you were, how experienced you are in crossing the Sea of Galilee, the terrifying reality of your life was that everything was incredibly fragile. How could you not fear what was around you and wonder if today would be the day that it all fell apart? This is, in essence, the fear of the world and what it does to us today, isn't it? The storms and the seas that surround each and every single one of you here today, there's a sense that our environment, our culture, our neighborhood, our wealth, our possessions, or maybe even our marriages and our families aren't safe. The fear of the world makes us wonder if today is going to be the day that the worst thing could possibly happen. And it can be incredibly crippling and make us always believe that the worst is going to happen at every single moment and every single time. I mean, it would be hard to even just take a look at the events this week and feel differently about that. Um, 42 mass shootings already at the start of 2023. The unimaginable horror of the events in Memphis and California. 300 missiles hitting the Ukrainian village Donsk in the war that between two sides has already taken, by estimation, 200,000 lives. When you put on top of that, our own personal fears of the world, our sicknesses, the pressures of work, the tragedies of our own lives, lost relationships, church hurt, our own personal histories, it becomes hard to not want to be fearful of the world all the time. We easily fall into despair in our circumstances. Now, this is in spite of the fact that technological, social, and political advances have been made to try and make as life safe for us as possible. So why do we fear the world? Uh, a sociologist of fear and atheist, Frank Ferendi, one of the leading sociologists on the subject of fear, says this, this quote, why Americans fear more when they have far less to fear than in other moments in the past is a question that puzzles numerous scholars. One argument used to explain this paradox of a safe society is that prosperity encourages people to become more risk and loss averse. In other words, in an attempt to drive our fears away, in an attempt to put any notion of discomfort in our rearview mirrors, we cause ourselves to become even more fearful of everything around us. We long for circumstances to go away as fast as possible. We long for all of these things to guide our daily lives in hopes that there will be a place where there is nothing to fear. So how is that going for you? It leads us to more desperation, doesn't it? Especially for those of us who choose to live in the suburbs, thinking that it would be guarantee our safety and the prosperity for our families around us. Know this, the circumstances of the world just always creates another thing to fear in our environment, doesn't, doesn't it? Uh, as fears build, it will cause us to lose sight of the work that God has placed right in front of us and a calling he's, he's given us as, as his children to do justice, to love mercy, and walk humbly before him in a world in need of a better thing to fear. 
we must be mindful that those in the Columbia area, that, that, that the growing safety of such a place such as ours can often disillusion us or make us indifferent to the sufferings of others. And what drives this is our fears of facing any sense of discomfort at all. The fear of the world, you see, is a never-ending cycle. I hope I've made my, my point here that only spirals into continued and ever-present fears. And yet the longing of the human heart, regardless of whether you consider yourself a Christian here or not today, is a sense that we want peace in the midst of all that surrounds us and the courage to face everything in front of us. Now where do we find the solution to the fear of the world? We find it in a sleeping savior in the stern of a boat. Why is that? Because Jesus, you see, is right there with his disciples. Jesus as man enters into the world that we fear around us. He's in the boat experiencing the storms. He's seeing the teetering of the same circumstances around him. He understands why they would fear what they are fearing. But his conclusion on the matter is starkly different from the disciples around him. He's asleep. Why is that? Is Christ indifferent? Is Christ lacking compassion for his disciples? No, far from it. Christ understands that his mission, the call of his life, is rooted in the idea that there is nothing that the world can do to him that isn't within the call that God has placed on his life. Christ knew his mission in that covenant made with the Father of eternity past. He knows that this isn't the event that will ruin him. That the event, circumstances, and yes, even the current storm that Jesus is facing doesn't have the last word. Christ knows the end of the story. And it causes him to react accordingly. The disciples are letting the wind and the waves of the moment drive their fears. And Christ is letting the word and the ways of God dictate his response. And what does it drive him to? It drives him to rest. The exhaustion of the moment calls for Jesus to lay his head to sleep rather than spike his worry and cause him to tear at the powers of the world. So let me ask you a question. What has this week meant for you as you examine the circumstances of your life? Where will you find your rest even today in the midst of this storm? What does this worship service mean for you? Those who you're looking for peace in your heart today, and how can you find it in the finished work of the cross of Calvary? Resting in Christ allows us to avoid two things when we face the circumstances or the fear of the world. We don't go into what I like to call Christian Disneyland, pretending the events of the world aren't happening, or that they are trivial matters. Or we also don't go into what we, I like to call Christian target practice, throwing gospel grenades at every person whose tragedies are there in front of them and just saying, you know, the reason why this happened to you is because you don't fear God. We have to avoid those two extremes. Rather, when we rest in Him in the midst of our circumstances, it causes the world to wonder about why are they so courageous? Why is the church so hopeful? In, when the fears of the world are around us. So in other words, we aren't restored through escapism, but we're filled by the words of God, which give us daily bread. 
We aren't justified through our argumentative gospel grenades, spilling the blood of our neighbors, but instead we are justified by the blood of the cross already won for us. So life becomes more purposeful when we rest in Him. And therefore, rather than fear the world, we are ready to risk everything to face the life that's ahead of us. But what could stop us from risking everything? That's our second fear today, and that's the fear of the flesh. The disciples, for the very first time in Mark's gospel, face the threat of death in front of them. Now, how do they do with this fear in front of them? How do they, how do they respond? Not well, do they? The storm shatters their understanding of the risk that they are taking by choosing to follow Jesus. The leading researcher on the field of vulnerability, Brene Brown, uh, once shared this story in a lecture that went something like this, a scene that she was setting for her audience and encouraging her audience to fill in the blanks. All right, so I'm going to share this story, and I want you to fill in the blanks now, okay? So it's Christmas Eve, all right? Family of four is driving down a wintry road. They are laughing, enjoying the drive together, just basking in the time of the holidays and celebrating life together. What happens next in the story? Now, almost universally, the audience immediately stated the worst possible thing that could happen to this family. Maybe you were thinking it as well. Car crash, train tracks, they drive off the road, someone gets sick, etc., etc., etc. Now, why does that happen? Why does that happen? Her research called those thoughts that come into play what she calls a catastrophizing mindset that you can't even enjoy the things of life because the fears of the flesh make you instantly believe the worst possible thing will happen to you. And it's crippling. And it makes you question the goodness of everything around you. The fear of the flesh is the realization of the fragility of our own lives. And we run and turn to any immediate promise of relief to save us, even if that means we question the goodness of God. More broadly, for us as a church, churches run into the fear of the flesh often in our own bodies, worrying about our own preservation as an institution to the very detriment of the mission that God has called us to go. We're worried that some world ideology will be the end of the church, some cultural moment, despite Christ's claims that the gates of hell will not stand upon it, forgetting that God will stand faithful to uphold the true church in every generation. We worry what will happen, oh, if this sinner or that sinner comes and enters into our door. And so instead of approaching the posture of love and charity, we suspect, we slander, we attack, we fence the church rather than see ourselves as a hospital for sinners. This is sadly an approach to church planning ministry in America that has often come back to haunt the church in our reputation to the world. And the strategy of church planning that it just simply means to find the most affluent areas to do ministry, plant there. And so in that, the theory of that was that you can sustain the work of the pastor and the building and his salary to the detriment of those outside the city where this church resides or communities that are in desperate need of the gospel. While we have seen many Bible-believing, gospel-teaching churches in those areas, And yes, certainly, Jesus needs to be proclaimed in Orange County, California, in Honolulu, Hawaii, and Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm not saying we shouldn't plant churches there. But this strategy and its intentions fails to recognize what it means to count the cost of following Jesus and what it means to give up our lives to him. Teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? Is the cry of the disciples. And it's more than a question of concern. It's challenging the very identity of Jesus. It's questioning of the rabbi they gave their life to. That their devotion to Jesus has wondered, is this, what's in it for me? What's in it for my well-being? It's, believing, it's them believing that their faith is a catastrophe, worth abandoning, because they are more concerned about who they are rather than who Jesus is. In effect, the moment of greatest fear for their lives, they are ready with this statement to give up their worship of the Lord. Here's the problem with self-preservation and churches with a self-preservation mindset. John C. Miller in his excellent, excellent book that everyone should read, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, talks about the idea that self-preservation mindset will only turn the church into a glorified country club. Always disappointed at its lack of fruit and yet not willing to dare to risk their own safety. The fear of the flesh fails to recognize who we actually belong to. If we belong to just ourselves, then we will inevitably treat every relationship, every interaction, our families, our posture towards the world and moments of crisis, that which will only benefit us and never discomfort us. And when those values get attacked, we will destroy those relationships and everything that would cause us to consider the posture that we have been called to, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these fruits of the Spirit. We as a church then could functionally live, not as a body of Christ sacrificially loving one another, but as a business, treating each other as commodities and with job descriptions. But I will say, the reality of our mortality will always come for us as a church and as individuals. All of our self-preservation leads to its inevitable decline. This is what happens when the disciples cave to the fear of the flesh. What do the disciples and us fail to see? They were the disciples of Jesus. They belonged to him. That Jesus the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and chose fishermen, zealots, people who were broken in the circumstances of their life and said to these disciples, you belong to me. They are in Jesus' boat. They reside in Jesus' world and that as Messiah, that he will bring about the restoration of all things. Their lives, in other words, are secure because the death they've spent a lifetime avoiding is now taken away by the grace that Christ is providing them at that very moment. In other words, the fear of the flesh becomes defeated when we realize that we don't belong to a God of circumstances who sits far off in heaven, but a God who is with us and calls us his children and says that he will never let us go. When you are able to trust deeply in the Savior who's got you in the middle of the storm, you will let go of the obsession to control your life and the life of Christ's church. One of the very first recorded martyrs in the church history outside of Scripture was a man by the name of 
Polycarp. Now, I, I know for a certain generation that Polycarp is a Pokemon, but, but not the Pokemon, okay? Uh, an actual man named Polycarp was reported to be a disciple of James, a dedicated man of prayer. He was at the age of 86 years old and followed Jesus his whole life until it caught the attention of the Roman Empire, who seek to put him to death given his following of Christ had reached their ears. And as the story of Polycarp, Polycarp goes, multiple times they begged and pleaded with this old man to get him to renounce Christ. Why, why, wouldn't it be just so easy for you to just say, Lord Caesar, and to offer sacrifices to the gods and be saved? Take the oath and we will let you go. Just revile Christ. It's not worth your life. What was Polycarp's response? For 86 years, I've been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp was burned at the stake. And Polycarp reminds us that there are those Christians out in the world today who know that they belong to a merciful God who has saved them from the pit of hell, who has saved them from the craziest and wild storms of years past and is renewing and restoring them day by day by day. And that allows him to give up the fear of the flesh to give his life to Christ. Christians, are we willing to do the same? But before we can answer that completely, we have our third fear to deal with in this passage, and that's the fear of the devil. Now, you might at this point object with me in the sermon and ask me, uh, Pastor, I'm looking at these six verses here, but there is no expressed uh, instance of a demon or a devil working in this passage. What could this possibly mean? What do you mean the fear of the devil? And for this, I have to remind you of how Jesus has operated in the past chapters regarding demonic possession. If you flip to the end of Mark chapter 1, and you'll look again as we covered a couple weeks past, when Jesus casts out the demon in the demon-possessed man, how does he do that? Jesus rebukes the demon in verse 25 and then says to the demon what? Be silent. What is also happening here in this passage at the end of chapter 4? Jesus is rebuking the winds and the waves, and what does he do? He rebukes and tells them, be silent. The parallels in Mark's language here will come up again and again in his gospel, and there's an expressive intentionality in the language here to show who is foundationally the causes of the fears of the world and the fears of the flesh. And so we see here that indeed in this particular case, the natural disaster is caused by Satan, the orchestrator of these events to cause this ruinous situation to lead people away from the love and worship of God and leading to reject him. We are reminded in the words of 2 Corinthians 4.4 where Satan is the God of this world and has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that is exactly what he's trying to do with the disciples here in this passage. And so now let's look at our own lives. Everything that we see that is pure evil, 
pure horror, unspeakable tragedy, tumultuous ways are reminders of the fading control that Satan has before the second coming of Christ. The devil's last gasp of resistance against God is the trick that he wants to play on you, that no good God could allow these evils to happen, that surely that Satan cannot be behind this mess. So the disciples fall into the trap that we all enter to from wave to wave in our lives, that the trials we have are no match for God, and thus God cannot be who he claims to be. You know, there are those today that believe the answer to all the inner and outer turmoil of this world is purely based on the realm of the physical, that there is nothing spiritual about what is happening to us. My challenge to that and to only make that distinction means that we are just simply mere matter. We are just atoms reacting, and therefore there is nothing truly personal or unique or wonderful about us. We're just all matter meant to exist, and therefore nothing of which we could properly be called a soul is a category that we should even consider. But then we are reminded of things in this world, don't we? Remind us of things such as a conscience, such as moral responsibility, and the duty to one another, such concepts and abstractions like love and peace. And these things have no basis in the physical realms of atoms and matters, and yet that drives the many purposes of our lives. The apologist David Wolpe once famously said in regards to the idea of the spiritual realm being against scientific reasoning, he says this, for what purpose do you wake up in the morning? Who do you love and why does love matter? These are not scientific questions and yet you live your life by these questions. The fear of the devil comes when we deny that he is a force that wants us to think that spiritual matters are not there, that God cannot be who he claims to be, a spirit, eternal, infinite, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and truth. He must not be who he says that he is because here are the storms, here are the waves, here is death. But Jesus here, as he did in chapter one, demonstrates the true authority that he holds over the powers of Satan himself. The demonic forces of the winds that would rock the boat asunder are rebuked back into obedience. The demonic forces behind the waves of the water that would fill the waters of the boat are told to be still. The fear of the devil is completely powerless under the voice of God. Do you come today troubled in your spirit? Do you come today with a soul that is weary and burdened, maybe even bitter, do you come with hearts filled with a sorrow that is more than just physical but gets to the very heart of your soul? I have great news for you to receive. Jesus has rebuked the wind and the waves of the disciples and he has rebuked Satan and caused them to be silent at the foot of the cross. Jesus sees the death that eats away in every person and he takes it upon himself. Jesus gives us rest and the peace that passes all understanding. He wants you to seek the peace of mind knowing that the weight of sin has been lifted and you don't have to fear the world and its machinations and instead be driven to a deeper love for the world that the Father had when he sent Christ. Jesus shatters the walls of bitterness, of shame, of spiritual decay 
that the warfare we experience in the soul has an answer that will drive it away one day, and that is the cause of Christ coming down again in glory. And so, knowing that hope, we pick up our spiritual swords and we fight. Maybe some of us with an incredible limp, but we fight. I recently have been seeing a counselor and he's been helping me work through the very things uh, that have caused these spiritual wounds in my life. And as I've been working with him, I, I'm realizing more and more the need for the body of Christ to, 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 to encourage one another to keep on going because these fears can be overwhelming for many of us. But I will say to you today, the fight that you've been fighting has not been in vain because Jesus is victor over all of our fears. Which leads us to answer the question we started our sermon with. And that is, what does the fear of the Lord actually look like? To answer this question, uh, the very helpful book by Michael Reeves called Rejoice and Tremble, I would commend that to you. Uh, many of his thoughts are reflected in this last point here. Um, and he discusses the idea that the fear of the Lord, as we've often think about it, is very impersonal. But that's not what the fear of the Lord is. It's not rooted in guilt or manipulation or fear-mongering. After all, as the book of James that we studied recently reminds us, even the demons believe and they shudder, right? So clearly if demons have a certain kind of fear of the Lord, then what is the real fear of the Lord that the people of God need? It's not a sinful fear. We can have a sinful fear of God himself. Instead, what we think about the fear of the Lord and how it's categorized in Scripture, this is a fear that leads to awe and to worship. If you want to understand what the true fear of the Lord looks like, it's a fear that leads to awe and worship. We stand in the presence of God like the disciples did who performs unbelievable acts of majesty and wonder and joy and the disciples, we stand as, 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 like the disciples, we stand in awe of this God who can do such things in the world today, that even the winds and the waves obey him. And it leads us to worship. As the disciples will continue to give their lives to this Jesus because of the wonder that he delivers them from all of their fears. So this is what a good and healthy fear of the Lord looks like. It's a personal God you approach. Not a God who's not with you. And it's a personal God who leads you to wonder and awe and worship. And you have a building anticipation and excitement for what God's going to do next. Uh, how many of you here are thrill seekers here in this room? Any of you here? All right. Not many? Okay, that's okay. Um, in my time in youth ministry, one of my favorite activities to do as a youth pastor was to take uh, middle school and high school students to amusement parks. Um, particularly those who were really scared of roller coasters and had never ridden a roller coaster before in their life. Uh, it's, it's one of my personal joys in youth ministry, all right? Um, and one of the bonding activities I did was finding the scariest roller coaster in the park, no matter where we went to, and then somehow convincing them to get in line for the ride, right, okay? And then once I got them in the line, I knew that this you know, crowd would form behind us and they were boxed in, okay? So they, they, would, they would have to kind of stay there. And so there's no backing out. And as we got closer and closer to the ride, 
you started hearing the screams get a little louder, right? You start to hear the, 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 the mechanics of the situation getting louder and louder, and the nervousness begins to ride in all these quote-unquote tough middle school and high school uh, adolescent boys, you know? And then they start asking fascinating questions, like, what happens if I throw up and hit myself with it? Or, what happens if my hair gets trapped in the ride? Will my scalp get ripped off or will I just die right away? And, you know, I, and I laugh. I just, like, straight up laugh at them. And they think I'm, like, being heartless. They're like, how can our youth pastor be so uncaring? Why do you laugh at our pain and our questioning? But... The reason why I laugh is because the reality of I've lived out so many years of doing this. I love being able to sit in the ride right next to them, lower the safety bar, and tell them, everything's going to be okay. Just breathe. You'll be fine. And as the ascent for that very first, you know, drop comes, you know, I fear, I, I feel their fear. It's swelling. And then that release when they go down that first hill, the feeling of weightlessness, dragging their bodies to ever lift so gently off the seat, and they scream at octave ranges that no soprano could ever hit at a normal range, coming out of these middle school and high school boys, right? Going through puberty, and then the, then the car catches them, and they realize they're safe from death. And suddenly, there's this transformation that happens. The ride no longer comes anymore a place of sinful fear, but of wonder and awe and delight. Every turn becomes a moment where they, they no longer fear death, but they realize this is now the opportunity to marvel at the speed, gravity, wind, heart racing towards this thrilling finish to the point that even the most scared of guys would raise their hands in the middle of the ride because now they experience the, free, the real fear that leads them to awe and to wonder. So what is their response at the end of the ride? That was crazy. I can't believe I did that. Can we go again? Christ is in the boat with you all. He's not asleep with his disciples because he's indifferent or that he doesn't care. He knows what's to come. And he's waiting to assure us and tell us that there is nothing that the world, the flesh, or the devil to fear. And instead, he wants to draw us towards the awe and worship of him. When your fear is foundationally placed on the only one deserving of it, you will find obedience to his commands and his assurances as not just mere platitudes, but you will find a thrill of life that you have never, ever begun to experience before. You will find Christ more beautiful, more amazing, more awesome, more powerful, more assured, and more importantly, you will realize that all of this comes to you not because you've earned something you've deserved from Jesus, but you will realize that he's done this because he has calmed the wind and the waves. My prayer for you as a church is that if there's anything you fear in this life, it would be the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. It is clean and enduring forever in the Psalms. It is delight like a treasure of Zion in Isaiah. It is a mission multiplier in Acts. It is the power of persuasion in 1 Corinthians to the ministry of reconciliation. And more, most importantly, the fear of the Lord will draw you to the beauty of Christ, to love him deeply 
and to cherish him fully. Let City of Hope be the church that would be known for the fear of the Lord. All you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Let's pray together.